Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Sleep is something that is absolutely central to our health and existence, but sleep doesn't come easy to many. This is especially so often with the elderly. Daryl Appleton is both a psychiatrist and a sleep specialist. Dr. Appleton, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, My pleasure, and thank you for having me on today. We are talking about something that consumes upwards of 30% of our lives. So let's begin with two definitions. What exactly is sleep, and what is this thing that we hear, the circadian rhythm? Can you give us a little introduction to those concepts, please? Sure. In general, sleep is something that's obviously very paramount to our health and well-being. And as you mentioned, it makes up generally about a third of our life. The way that one defines sleep is usually something that is evaluated by looking at our brain waves. We all have brain waves and different types of brain waves, and it's really important that when we try to fall asleep, that we refresh ourselves and give our bodies a chance to recuperate. And this is really what the essential belief is that sleep is so important for. How does sleep change over the years? Does it change over the years? Well, yeah, yes, it does. One of the things that I find most commonly in my practice is that I notice that insomnia or difficulty in falling, staying asleep or feeling unrefreshed really gets much more of a problem as we age. We tend to find two main areas where people have lots of difficulties. One, of course, is in children. So children have lots of difficulties starting from infancy and around the time period of toddler. So there's lots of difficulties with children waking up and co-sleeping and the like. We see difficulties as our body clocks change as we get into adolescence and teenage years. It changes again when when or if we decide to become parents and it changes particularly in mothers, not to denounce the fathers at all, but if mothers are the primary caregiver of their small infant children, it can very much affect the quality of their sleep and their abilities to stay asleep afterwards. We find changes as we get towards menopause and andropause, which is sort of the equivalent in males. And of course, as we get older, we find much more difficulty in falling asleep and in the timing of our sleep, as well as the amount of sleep. Before we get into some of the more interesting and and absolutely necessary scientific things, I've often been impressed that one of the things we spend too little time talking about is the concept of sleep hygiene. It's the obvious thing, like having a good bed. And this isn't addressed that much if you look at the TV commercials, if you look at the boxes of the -the over-the-counter medications. Very little is discussed about sleep hygiene. I'd like your thoughts on that. Sure. I I think that's really crucial. Sleep hygiene in general is the things that we do before we fall asleep and in getting ready for sleep. And we tend to have difficulties in being too rushed or too stressed, and we generally don't give ourselves a nice pattern and do the right things that we're supposed to do before we fall asleep. So one of the most important things that one would do as a sleep specialist is to make sure that you take a sleep diary of your patients, in addition to, of course, getting a very good history and physical and medical history, and make sure that you get an assessment of their baseline. What time do people go to sleep? When do they fall asleep? What's their bedroom environment like? And, of course, what kind of things are they doing or not doing that can be aiding their sleep? I have to ask you a follow-up question because clearly we are the first real couple generations in the history of humankind where we have such access to artificial light. People can stay up till midnight. They have the computer screens on. They have the TV on and that sort of thing. Do we have a, a handle on what effect all of these artificial impacts are having on our sleep patterns? Do we have much understanding of how much we need to treat that versus just automatically giving someone a pill to go to sleep at night? That, that's actually a very interesting question. And 
The answer is that research is showing, in fact, that artificial sources of light do, in fact, play a significant role in our body clock. Getting to that area, we all have an internal body clock governed by biological rhythms, and these are known as circadian rhythms. Circadian means around the day from Latin. And we have an internal body clock that we all have, and it helps govern when we should be more awake and when we should be more sleepy. One of the things that's so crucial is that light is known to affect certain areas of the brain and can decrease our production of melatonin, which is a significant hormone causing us to have less propensity to fall asleep. So let's use this as a clear segue. Tell us about melatonin. People see it in the stores. I'm sure people are swallowing it in enormous numbers. Tell us about melatonin. Is it good? Is it safe? Give us a little bit of the history and the science. The answer to that, of course, is yes, it can be very useful, and I do use it in my practice. Unfortunately, I do find it is often used a little bit improperly. To start off with, melatonin is a hormone that our body naturally makes by the pineal gland in our brain. The chiasmatic nucleus controls the pineal gland. And what happens is, is that our body usually uses this as a signal to sort of prepare our body to fall asleep. When I was doing my training in sleep up in Toronto, Canada, we used to actually notice lots of our patients coming in, taking supplements of melatonin. And very often they would take doses that were available out at sort of like a GNC or other natural food market, usually in the two, three, or five milligram dose. And they often would take it just before bedtime. What's interesting is that this hormone doesn't last very long in the body. It has a half-life of about 45 minutes. And although it has what we call saporific effects or the ability to make you sleepy, it actually has its much more profound effects on the timing of when it should be occurring in our body. And it's really related to when the onset is. Sort of like when a woman would like to have her menstruation and you need to have your ovulation at a certain time, that you need to have hormones given in certain pulses at certain times. Otherwise, you won't ovulate. The same thing occurs with our sleep onset. We want our melatonin in our body to go up at a certain spike at a certain time. And for most of it, it's closer to about 7.30 or 8 p.m. And we then feel the effects of this a few hours later. As we go into talking more about this, uh, and people hear me say this all the time, any decision to take any sleep medication, even some that seem very, very benign, really need to be done in consultation with a physician because there are mixtures of medications, and though many of these medications, especially the -the over-the-counter medications, are not that dangerous, they're not also completely benign. So that being said, let's follow this a little bit. Melatonin is a very key factor in going to sleep. I read a very interesting notion that teenagers, uh, their bodies actually produce more melatonin to keep people sleeping longer because they're growing so much. This is really fascinating. It seems to shift with the age. That's absolutely true. And just to, before we get into that, I would like to mention that I fully agree with you. And it's important that you tell all your healthcare providers about all supplements and vitamins and other so-called natural things that you're taking in addition to your medications. Melatonin, for example, is not necessarily completely benign. And at the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, when we follow their guidelines, we want to be careful with melatonin, both in terms of the timing and the administration, and also because it can have vasoconstrictive effects. So I usually do not suggest patients take ever more than five milligrams. And in fact, it's often found in research that much lower doses work just as well. And you want to make sure you're clear of any cardiac significant history. To get back to your, to your point, 
as we are very young, as we're newborns, you'll often notice that newborns can sleep through pretty much almost anything, and their melatonin levels are extremely high at that time. And as we age, it drops and has, again, another increase in the level during teenage and adolescence. And this has a very interesting effect because it's thought to be involved with allowing us to sleep longer and have a decreased arousal threshold. And it changes the timing of when a teenager usually feels sleepy. It creates what's called a phase delay, which means that they often will go to bed much later than you would later on in life. And you would want to feel more refreshed when you wake up later. The opposite occurs as we get into elder years and we have much decreased amounts of melatonin. And as a result, we tend to have what's called a phase advance where we tend to fall asleep earlier. And I think that's generally why down here in Florida, we have the early bird specials. <laughs> Interesting. But it could also explain why people notice that their grandfather is falling asleep at 8 o'clock at night. But then he wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning and his sleep pattern is completely messed up. What should he do to balance this out? Is there any safe mechanism to balance this out, to restore it to more of a, a normal sleep pattern? Well, yes. There's a number of things that you can do. Of course, melatonin, when used properly, can be beneficial. And one of the things that we do if we really want to get technical is there is a test or what we call an assay that can be done. I don't suggest we do it in everyone. And it's called a dim light melatonin sleep onset study. That's a mouthful for anyone. But what it generally is, is when you would come into a specialized laboratory and you would, in essence, give a saliva sample every 30 minutes, starting at about seven o'clock in the evening until about three in the morning. And we would evaluate to see when your particular timing is. And you can use that as a guide to really tell you, first of all, do you have a deficiency of melatonin? Not everyone does. Do you, would you have guidance as to what amount you should use and when? Also, light is very important. Before we even get to that, the most important thing to do is to take a really good history because as we age, we tend to do a lot of things that don't go along with normal sleep hygiene. As we retire and we aren't necessarily as active as we used to be, that affects our body clocks. The medications we take, we tend to take many more medications as we age. A lot of medications have different effects on our ability to fall asleep or stay asleep. So it's important to understand the timing in which medications need to be used and to get good instructions from the doctor, whether it needs to be done in the morning, supper time, how late in the day can you take it, and so on. Exactly. We also know, and you, you alluded to it, we know there's an extremely high incidence of comorbid illnesses, and the fancy word comorbid means coexisting. Illnesses in the elderly, one of them is depression. Very, very common depression has a lot of sleep problems. Antidepressants help with sleep. But is this the same melatonin notion when we get down to the basic chemistry, or are we thinking that there are two different elements at play here? Yes. In fact, we do believe that antidepressants, particularly sedating or ones that make you sleepy, antidepressants, they play a role in different areas, different neurotransmitters, if you will. There's a concept that as our norepinephrine and serotonin levels are decreased, that also affects our sleep in a negative way. And in fact, antidepressants are known as one modality and often interestingly used in lower doses than one may need to even treat a full depressive picture. But of course, psychiatric issues such as depression and anxiety are paramount because very often in our practice, we'll see people that come in with difficulties falling and staying asleep. And when you really take a good history, you'll notice that they may have 
one of these issues that isn't fully being treated. One of the interesting things of late is a old drug that's been brought back to us as a sleep aid, and it's an old antidepressant, and it's being, just as you said, it's being marketed at doses that are way beneath that which we used for depression. Incredible how the science is finally catching up with our observations that we've had for a very long time. Yes, that's a very interesting point, and I was involved at one point with a group that was doing research on this particular drug in the clinical phases, and this is, in essence, a variant of a drug called doxepin, which, or the brand name would be Sinequan, if some of us know it from the use a few years ago. And it was used at much, much lower doses than one would traditionally think of in the very low milligram area, somewhere between 3 and under 10 milligrams. It's often been shown to be very beneficial for many as a potential sleep aid. And of course, it, as you may know, it will be coming out very shortly. It's just as an interesting play on how old things come back and the more that we learn about them, that we can find new uses. You, you said something else as well, and it triggered the notion that we have to talk about. And that is that there is often an understated problem with alcohol abuse in the elderly. But so many people will come and they'll say that a glass of wine really helps them sleep. This is, again, not as benign as it may be, but for many people, again, a glass of wine does help them. So let's take a quick walk, so to speak, into the area of sleep and alcohol use. Sure. Uh, And in fact, this is one of the major areas of my interest. One of the major areas I see is with people with long-term alcohol use, in addition to other substance use or abuse, they have tremendous difficulties with their ability to sleep when they decide, of course, to become sober. Alcohol in general is known to, when you first take it, it can be beneficial. It can have some anxiolytic effects. It works on GABA receptors, which is where a lot of our other older hypnotic medications have worked. And it works to increase what's called deep sleep or slow-wave sleep, which is to use the older nomenclature, stage 3 and stage 4 sleep, which is obviously very useful at the beginning of the night. The difficulty, of course, becomes that once it does that and it has other effects, such as the diuretic and central nervous system depression effects, it comes out of our system as we metabolize it and it causes increased sleep fragmentation. And one of the difficulties, of course, is that as we age, we tend to have fragmentation of our sleep where it's interrupted. We have decreases in our amount of slow-wave sleep. We have decreases in our dreaming sleep and, of course, in the timing of our sleep. So, of course, it's very important to find other ways of trying to deal with our abilities to fall asleep than to take just a nightcap. Absolutely, but it is a very popular problem. And, of course, the thing about alcohol is that it can be obtained without a prescription, and many times we really do not know how much our patients are drinking. That's interesting. I remember when I was doing my training down in Miami that they used to tell us whatever a patient would tell you they're taking, you double it. So, you know, of course, we never really know. And in fact, the same thing actually goes with cannabinoids as well. I find that a lot of patients, depending upon their age, are using illicit treatments to try and help themselves sleep. Fortunately or unfortunately, if anyone's ever had difficulties with their sleep, they often know that it affects their daytime functioning so much and, of course, has such comorbidities, to use your term, that they will use anything and everything to try and help themselves sleep. Understandably so. A good night's sleep is is a gift, and it really does make a difference in the way our entire lives pan out for the next day. Very important. I want to ask you a question, though, that a lot of times people are very surprised when they hear the answer. The definition of insomnia, it's really broader than just can't go to sleep at night. It really encompasses the whole day. 
Are we seeing the definitions change between insomnia, broken sleep, why people, or, or they call it early morning awakening? Are these all definitions or are they still hold true? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, this is a question that I'm always asked whenever I have to do testimony in, in a court setting. This is because there are different definitions, and it also depends upon whom you're talking to. Traditionally, in the layman's term, when you think of insomnia, most people think of difficulty in just falling asleep. And when we try to define it, there are different texts that we use and different journals that we use. We often use something called the ICSD, which is the International Classification for Sleep Disorders. We also can find different definitions in the ICD, which is International Classification of Diseases in the 9th or 10th edition, depending upon your country of origin and also in the DSM-4-TR, which is our Bible, so to speak, in the psychiatric world. The way I generally define insomnia and the way that it's traditionally used is difficulties in falling asleep, difficulties in staying asleep, and difficulties in feeling refreshed when one wakes up. And that's much more all-encompassing. There was a study done at the National Institute of Aging where they had a report and they interviewed about 6,000 older adults. They noticed that about 28% of people reported difficulties in falling asleep, and a whopping 42% of those that answered the questionnaire reported difficulties in falling and staying asleep. So it's something that's very often underreported, and it's something that really I'd like to stress is not normal. It's not normal to have difficulties with your sleep as we age. This is something that can be evaluated and can be treated both with and without medication. Very interesting. Daryl Appleton is a psychiatrist and as you've heard, a gentleman who also specializes in sleep medicine and knows quite a bit about it. Dr. Appleton, we thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.